Good morning, everybody, and thank you for allowing me to come here and talk to you about this ancient artifact that uh, we've had the privilege of bringing in to you. Now, Dr. Tour said I had about 35 minutes, and I have promised not to go a single minute over one hour, so we should be good. So, <clears throat> first I want to invite all of you to come up and, and take a look at this scroll. Even as I'm introducing the scroll, it's not going to disrupt me. Um, if you don't feel comfortable coming up while I'm talking, certainly you can come up afterwards. We're going to have the scroll out for you guys to look, uh, look at. Now, because we have food in here, we would ask that you not bring food up around the scroll. If you go ahead and go to the, uh, first, or the second slide there. Um, not have food around the scroll. If there's any small children, um, not have small children around, around the scroll. We do want to be careful and preserve this ancient artifact uh, as best we can. Now, we can touch the scroll with our hands, um, but we don't want to touch the ink. The reason why we can touch the scroll is because it's what's called pasul. And that means that it is no longer kosher. Now, this scroll at one point in time was a kosher scroll, and it was taught and used within the synagogues for hundreds of years. Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> now, the name of this scroll, it's, it's what's called an Ashkenazi scroll. So what does that mean? Well, basically, Ashkenazi is a word for Eastern Europe. And, and with that, this scroll came out of Germany... And it is, as Dr. Tor mentioned, it is a Torah scroll. So it has the first five books of the Bible. Now, if you hear the word Torah, and you know that's the first five books, but you've also heard the word Pentateuch, which also means the first five books. So what, what makes the difference? Why would we call one thing a Pentateuch? Why would we call it a Torah? Why, why sometimes we use that word versus the other? It depends on the format that it's in. If it's in scroll format, we call it a Torah but if it's in codex, so in other words, it's in book form, that is when we refer to it as the Pentateuch. Pent, meaning five, first five books of the Bible. Now, <clears throat> we know that this scroll was written in 1750. So I want that to sink in a little bit. That's 268 years ago. Now, to put it in a little bit of reference with something that we would be familiar with, this scroll was scribed 26 years before our own Declaration of Independence. Yes, you, you can use that. Now, again, just as a reminder, we don't want to touch the ink. You can touch the other parts of the scroll. That's perfectly fine. Let's go to the next slide. So I want you guys, if you will, just imagine that you're in, you're in a synagogue. It's 1938. It's November 9th. And you hear the broken glass, you hear the yelling, you hear the commotion outside, and someone comes running to you with this scroll and just says, run. This scroll is believed to come out of Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht was a night on November 9th and 10th, 1938, where hundreds of synagogues were destroyed. Over 800 ancient scrolls were destroyed. Now, if, uh, if you and me were there at that time and somebody came in and, with the scroll and yelled, run, they would probably look at you and say, here, you run and tell me you blocked the door, All right? Um, but this scroll has been preserved 
over that time. And when a scroll goes from being kosher, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be kosher versus pasul. But when a, when a scroll becomes pasul, it's no longer kosher. It's no longer fit to be used in the synagogues. Now, keep in mind, as a kosher scroll, it was never touched by human hands. If somebody needed to handle it, they would have rods that would go in at each side and they would just slowly roll and unroll the scroll as needed. If they needed to handle the scroll, they would have white gloves on or gloves that would preserve the scroll. Now, my lesson here is not to elevate the object. It is not to elevate the object, but it is to emphasize on the reverence that was held for God's word. The reverence that people have had throughout centuries. As Dr. Tour mentioned, people who gave their lives to preserve God's word so that it could be properly transmitted over time. Not just over decades, not just over centuries, but millennia. <clears throat> this scroll was found in what's called Geniza, which is storage. Whenever a scroll was no longer kosher, depending on the sect of Judaism, the scroll would either be placed in storage, which was where this one was found, or it would actually be buried in the ground and no longer used. And so what, what this was found was by a dealer in Israel. It was purchased. Three scrolls similar to this were purchased and donated to the ministry that myself and Eric Scott, who's at the back of the room, are in. And his, our ministry is called Ratio Christi. Now, Ratio Christi, just kind of as a brief background, we are a campus apologetics ministry, and we had the privilege of coming and introducing ourselves a few months ago to you guys. But we are now the caretakers of three of these ancient scrolls, and we bring them around to show students such as yourself these scrolls and to show how God's Word has been preserved over since, since ancient time past. Let's go, let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about this scroll. And as you come up and you take a look at it, some of the things you might notice about this scroll. First off, if you notice there's spaces in between the lines, and if you're looking at the column, there's, there's spaces there. Those delineate the starting and stopping point of daily reading. Now you may see where there's some text that goes on for quite a while without a space, and then you may see a very short passage. Those were, th- those were texts, if you think back to Psalm 1, where it talks about, you know, meditating on God's word daily. And that's what they were to do. They would read these scrolls daily. They would meditate on God's word. And they would make that part of their life. The ink from this scroll is not a carbon-based ink. The ink used in the scroll is all organic. It, it would come maybe from like the juice from an oak gall nut or honey sap tar. The, the, the thing is, if you used a carbon-based ink, it wouldn't last. And as we talk about the expense that went into making one of these scrolls, and you think back to some communities that, that uh, didn't have the resources or the money in order to regularly produce scrolls of this nature, they would need to make sure that this was preserved and respected and used for many, many years. It would be written with a turkey or goose feather, and the person who would write it would be called, is called a sofer or a scribe. Now, here's what I want you guys to think about because 
Some of you in here are in your early 20s. Some of you may be in, you know, 18, 19 years old. But a sofer would start their training between the ages of 13 and 19 years old. Now, before they were able to scribe or copy their first scroll, they would have to memorize over 4,000 rules. You thought Dr. Tour's chemistry class was tough? 4,000 rules before they could even begin copying their first scroll. Now, if you look at the precision of the letters, there's no, there's no, uh, no letters that touch. And it was done hand by hand. Now, I can't draw a stick figure straight, much less write letters and, and words without any of the words touching or any of the letters touching. Now, the dating of the scroll, now we know the dating of this scroll, but as you get into older scrolls, and, and it goes back even further, a lot of the dating is based on the letters. And so the letters, the, 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 uh, the form of the letters can tell you a lot about the, the sect of Judaism or the sect of scribes that wrote the scroll and, and the approximate dating. Let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> Now, again, my goal here is, is, to, is to impress upon us a reverence for God's Word, a reverence for Scripture, a reverence for what God has given us and, and how important it is for us to read daily and, and be in God's Word daily. But I want to draw kind of a parallel as to what some of the scribes and some of the traditions with the scribes were as they were scribing one of these scrolls. Now, when, when they would, imagine going along and as you're writing out and you're copying one of these scrolls, being very meticulous to make sure that all of the letters aren't touching, making sure that each of the columns are properly aligned. You don't have any words that carry over to the next line. Okay, you know how in English we get to the end of the line, we'll draw a little hyphen, we'll carry the word over to the next line. There's none of that in this scroll. But then you come to the name of God. You come to Yahweh. And a scribe would stop, pause, put down the feather, and say a prayer at that moment. In some of the fancier scrolls, you would actually see in God's name, you'd see gold flakes mixed in with the ink where they wrote the word Yahweh. Pick, this, pick the feather back up and then continue on. Get down a few more verses, you get to the word Yahweh again, you put the pen down, you, you then pray. Now, imagine, imagine if, as we're reading our own, our own scripture, we come to the name of our Lord Jesus. And imagine just as we are reading through the, the God's word, if we were to have even an ounce of the same reverence as we're reading through God's word. Now, there, with that, there are some false traditions that you may hear that go a little bit further than what was, uh, what was truth. Uh, some of them would be that they would actually take a goose feather and, and they would actually bring a new goose feather in just to write Yahweh or that they would take a, a ceremonial bath or something like that. So balance that out with what is actually true. And, and that, those are actually false traditions. They didn't do that. All right, let's go to, um, let's go to the next slide. So a little bit more about this scroll and just kind of the materials that it's made of. The, the paper that you see here is actually calf skin. And so it's made out of a kosher animal, a kosher calf. 
that skin was taken, it was stretched, it was scraped, and then it was cut into individual pieces known as parchment or vellum. Now, if you look closely, you can see that they are sewn together with the sinew, that's the ligands or tendons from ligaments or tendons from that animal. And all of that had to be kosher. Now, for a full Torah scroll, it would take approximately 100 calfskins to create. 100. So think about the expense and think about, again, what it would take to preserve one of these scrolls. Now, as far as corrections, because while there was great care taken, if there was a correction or maybe the scribe made an error and they could scrape the ink off or they could wipe the ink off. If it was too bad, they would actually, the poor communities would actually take and cut a patch and patch in a piece of vellum into, into the scroll. All right. Now, <clears throat> why is that important to us? We don't have scrolls today. I didn't, I didn't see anybody walk in today and, and as, as a pastor referenced the Bible verses, pull out a scroll. So why is that important to us? Well, first is in the preservation of God's word. How do we know what we're reading today is what was originally penned thousands of years ago. And in order to answer that, being able to understand the traditions and the care that went into not only the oral language, which Hebrew is an oral language, but also went into the scribal process, we can have a very very high comfort level and assurance that the words that are in this scroll, the letters that are in this scroll today, are what was there thousands of years ago. How do we know this? Well, for one, they knew exactly how many letters were in a Torah scroll. Exactly how many letters. Because they would count them. And before a scroll was approved, they would count those letters. You know, uh, we took this to HBU this past week, and as, as we rolled this out, um, Eric was teaching um, about the scroll and some of the processes, and what they would do is not only were they so, um, so precise in the writing, but even the quoting and the ways that they would know the Scripture. Whenever somebody would stand up and they would read Scripture, if they made a mistake, all of a sudden they would start pounding the desk to where you couldn't hear the person anymore. That person was done. Sit down. Somebody else is going to read. Okay? It was so precise. There's exactly 304,805 letters in a Torah scroll. Over, there's not over, but exactly 5,845 verses. Not approximately, not here, there, not around about. Exactly. Precise. Each one of these columns is exactly 41 lines. It took approximately a year to 18 months to scribe one of these scrolls. And as is, it's interesting, I haven't seen anybody here do this, but uh, the other places that I took the scroll this week, um, you can very, it's subtle, but you can see little bitty lines that are in the scroll which match up with the letters. I've had many people come to the other side of the table and say, I think it's upside down. And that's because our eye is used to the English language where the letter sits on the line. But in Hebrew, the letter actually hangs from the line. So when you first look at it, 
And, and I did this myself. We were, uh, we were sitting when I first opened it up and I had to remember, oh yeah, it hangs from the line. Me and, me and my, my sons, whenever we first opened it up at our, at our house, we were all looking at it for a little while there upside down. I'm like, wait a minute, it goes right to left. If we read this right to left, we just run right off the page. It doesn't make sense. So, and then I remembered it hangs from the line. So over here is where you would start and you would read right to left, letters hanging from the line, and you'd work your way that way, starting in Genesis all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. Let's go to the next slide. So the last thing I want to point out here is we, is we move into kind of the, the bulk of the lesson today and, and what we're, the message that I really want to get in around our New Testament canon is we had a, a gentleman, this is um, Ephraim Fishbach, who's a, uh, he's an official Hebrew reader. He was at our Ratio Christi Symposium in 2016, and he was reading this very scroll here, and it was the oldest scroll that he had ever read. Now, he's read hundreds of scrolls, but in reading from this scroll and just the, the preciseness of it, it brought him to tears. Now, I don't say that for dramatic effect or to... Or, or to, to say that when we, when we read our New Testament that it should always bring us to tears, but it, it should absolutely have a, an emotional and, and it should absolutely be done in reverence to what has been communicated to us. Now, we may not understand the, important, the importance of our scripture. We may not fully grasp that, but I promise you that the enemy does. And it's one of the reasons why our scripture, the New Testament, is regularly attacked. It's one of the reasons why when you look at the media and you look at um, even on the Internet, it's, you know, I mean, obviously, if it's on the Internet, it has to be true, right? But if you look at things out on the Internet... It will, you'll hear a lot of different narratives and a lot of different things about our, our scripture. And today I'm going to very briefly cover just three objections that we hear about our New Testament. Now, what I want to tell you is, is that when you see these objections, if you've done study around our New Testament, you'll, you'll very quickly see these are not scholarly objections. Matter of fact, if we had a New Testament professor in here that was um, and an atheist, he would probably say, nah, I wouldn't even argue for these things. But, but, these arguments, I put them up there because they're what I hear when I'm sharing the gospel. They're things that I hear and I read on, uh, on the internet. And so it's important just for us to be able to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us, but, all, but do so with gentleness and kindness, as it says in 1 Peter 3.15. So let's talk real quickly. Let's go to uh, the next slide. Why do we have the 27 books that we have in our New Testament? Why don't we have 28? Why not 26? Why do we even have them? How do we know that those 27 books are the 27 books that were supposed to be in there? Let's go to the next slide. The three skeptic criticisms that I want to bring up today, and these are things that you may, you may hear, like I said, if you look at comments to YouTube videos, if you maybe are talking to a family member. Uh, I've, I've heard it from even one of my own family members when we were discussing the Bible. 
they may say something that the Bible is simply a book that was written hundreds of years after the events of Jesus Christ. So we know his ministry was around A.D. 30 to A.D. 33 approximately. They're claiming that our New Testament was written hundreds of years afterwards. Or they may say that it was put together hundreds of years afterwards, that there were all these writings about the time of Jesus many years afterwards, and then hundreds of years afterwards, a group of men came together, took a vote, and selected from a pool of books to put it into a New Testament canon. And that's where we get our New Testament. Okay, that's their claim. Or they may even say that it wasn't even Scripture. The men who wrote the Bible didn't consider it Scripture. It was years afterwards that these men who put the Bible together decided to elevate it to Scripture. Okay, let's go look. Let's go see what history really says. Let's go take a look at the evidence that we have for this and see if we can make heads or tails and see if they're right. Next slide. First, we need to understand what is it, what does it even mean when we say canon, right? What does the word canon mean? Well, in Hebrew and Greek, it meant standard or rule. If something met canon, it met a standard, it met a rule. Today, it has come to mean the 27 books of the collection of Christian scriptures that we call the New Testament. That is known as canon. Let's go to the next slide. So let's first look at when did, when did the New Testament, as we know, be, uh, begin being written? When was it completed? Well, we know based on history, we be, know based on historical artifacts, fragments of manuscript, archaeological finds, and other writings, that our New Testament began composition in the mid-40s. Now, in our day and age, when we say 40s, we're like 1940s? No, 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 the 40s, the 40s, A.D., 40s, nothing in front of it. Okay, well, that's interesting. They said hundreds of years, 40s. If Jesus' ministry was 30 to 33, 40s, then we're talking 15 years-ish? That's not that long ago. Now, some of you may say, well, 15 years is really long. I promise you, it's not. I promise you. And if, if you were an eyewitness to the things that Jesus Christ did, if you were a disciple, someone who was following Jesus Christ, 15 years ago would have been a blink of the eye as to remember what had taken place. We also know that the canon, the books of the Bible, were finished before the turn of the first century. So if we know that, then we know that all 27 books that we call the New Testament were written during the apostolic era, which means that they were written by men and men who had a first-hand knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not a belief, a knowledge. They were there. They saw him. They would have known if what they were writing was a lie. Not believed. They would have known. We also know that once these documents were written, see, a lot of people love to say when they look at the history of our New Testament, they love to say that, 
Well, you have this book, the Bible. No, no, we have a codex that contains 27 independent historical documents. Those are 27 independent documents. They're just in one codex, one collection. Each one of these are independently historically attested to as separate documents. We know that whenever they were written, they were then taken to churches. If When Paul wrote the letter of Romans, it was taken to the church in Rome. It was then read in front of the church. It was then copied and sent to other churches where they read and copied it. Why do we bring a Torah scroll in? Because they were using some of the same practices, some of the same scribal practices in those letters that Paul wrote to then copy and send elsewhere and disseminate. Why do we know they did this? Because we have the evidence. We have the manuscripts. We have the the artifacts showing all the way back to the early second century of copies of the originals all over the place. We have more evidence for the historicity of our New Testament scripture than any other document, any other collection of documents from antiquity, from the ancient world. There's no other document like it, not even close. That goes into a part two to this lesson here. I won't get too too much into that, but that's part two. Let's go to the next slide. Let's talk real quickly about whether or not when Paul and Peter and Mark and Matthew were writing these documents, whether or not they thought that they were Scripture. Well, where can we go to take a look at that? Well, let's go directly to the words of those who were writing it. In Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 18, Paul says, For the, scriptures say, for the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. If we were to roll this out and have Eric come up here and read it to Deuteronomy 25.4, we would see where in Deuteronomy 25.4, we get that you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, keep in mind who wrote this. This was Paul, Paul, a Pharisee, an up and coming Pharisee in Judaism. He would have known the implications of calling something scripture that wasn't scripture. It would have been like blasphemy. And what he points here is to Deuteronomy 25.4. Well, great, that's, that's great, Chuck, but he's not talking about the Old Testament there. But wait, he says, and the laborer deserves his wages. Where do we get that from? That comes from Luke 10.7 where Luke is writing about, where our Lord is talking to the disciples and telling them, you will remain in the same house. He's talking about how the, the disciples were going out on mission and they were to remain in the houses of the towns that they came to. And you will remain in the house eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Paul is quoting Luke 10.7 and Paul is calling that Scripture. Paul is putting Deuteronomy and Luke on equal ground. It is believed that, and and what's interesting is, is that Timothy was written right around the same time Luke was. Both are believed to be written in the area of the 60s. The 60s. Okay? Now, let's look at, let's look at uh, 2 Peter 3.15 real quick. So this is Peter writing his letter to the churches. 
And he's referencing back to Paul and he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now listen to this next sentence. I love, I love Peter. Peter calls things how they are. I mean, have you ever been reading through Romans and then had to go back and reread it? Cause you're like, Paul, what are you saying here? All right. I love, I love Peter's transparency here. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. If Peter can have a hard time understanding, guess what? That, that makes me feel pretty good. So, so anyway, so Peter says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destructions, destruction as they do the other scriptures. So when Peter is sitting here, he's, he's talking about Paul's writings, and he says that people twist them as they do the other scriptures. That's an implicit statement. He is, by implication, he is saying that Paul's writings are scriptures. Folks, in, in the hour and a half that Dr. Tour has given me, I only can go through a couple of examples here. So, but there's, there's others. There's others in Scripture where they clearly point that the New Testament is Scripture. Let's go to the next slide. But what about outside of our Bible? What about the early writings of the church? Ever heard of Clement? Check them out. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. Clement. In some of his writings, now this is not Scripture. This is extra biblical, so this is outside of it. He writes in First Clement, he has cited and referred to the canonical Gospels, the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and James, and he did so as much as the Old Testament. Well, wait a minute, when was 1 Clement written? In the 90s. The 90s, AD 96. Now, wait a minute, but I read on the Internet that our New Testaments weren't created until hundreds of years afterwards. I'm not good at math. But I know that time travel is not possible. So if we have a document that's referring to our scriptures written in AD 96, those documents had to come before that. Now, if we look at 2 Clement and what he writes in 2 Clement, he's actually citing, this is the earliest extra biblical, so outside the Bible, citing of New Testament passages and saying they are scripture, specifically. They are scripture. And it's when he's citing Mark 2.17, where our Lord says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So you have Clement, who is most likely a disciple of Paul. And in his writings, he's quoting all of these different books that we find in the New Testament. And he's specifically calling them as scripture. Think on that for a minute. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. Let's go to the next slide. But let's look at some of the other church fathers. We have Polycarp, Papias. You know, Irenaeus called Polycarp a disciple of the Apostle John. John. The same John that would have seen Jesus walk on water. The same John that would have seen Jesus feed the 5,000. The same John that would have seen those the miraculous healings of Jesus Christ that walked with our Lord. You see, this is important because when we look at Polycarp and Papias, it's not like we have 
Jesus' ministry, and then we have this group of apostles that made these writings, and then when they die, there's like this span of a couple hundred years before history picks back up. And we don't know what happened there. No, we do. We know exactly what happened. We can trace who was a disciple of who and where were these documents passed down from? Where was this teaching passed down? How was this teaching preserved? This wasn't put together by a group of men as some council. Polycarp, he is quoting Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, Matthew, 2 Corinthians. Papias, Papias, sorry, my Texan came in. Papias, he, in, he wrote five books called the Expositions of the Lord's Sayings. And in those, he approved as Scripture Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Revelation. Now what's important is, is that even if right now, your Bibles vanished, your New Testaments vanished, your smartphones wiped out, internet gone, and we had no copies of the New Testaments, and all we had were the sermons of the church fathers, the early church fathers, that's all we had. Do you know that we could reconstruct, just from those sermons, the entire New Testament? Any future preachers in here? Yeah. There's a testament to the importance of preaching Scripture from the pulpit. That from the sermons of the early church fathers, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament. Folks, we know how this was handed down. We know how this was created. So to answer that question of our Scripture, when did Scripture become Scripture? When did it become Scripture? The moment it was written. The moment that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers, the authors of the New Testament, it became Scripture because it was God's Word. Next, next slide. We know that of the New Testament, 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament were all included in the first witnesses or the early witnesses of the church fathers writings of the first of the church fathers uh, sermons no question now this is not to cause uh, or, or cast any kind of doubt or question on third john it's just the simple fact that third john just wasn't explicitly mentioned we know that third john is scripture and we'll talk a little bit about the canonization the, the rules that were in place as to what called something Scripture here in a moment. So we have an overwhelming amount of evidence. Now, with all of this... Um, and Dr. How am I doing on time? Four minutes. Okay. We're going to go quick. So, real quickly, there's... Uh, next slide. There's several documents that have come up. They've been made popular by a writer named Dan Brown. Anybody in here heard of the Da Vinci Code? Right. So, what Dan Brown likes to write out there in fictional stories, and many have adopted this, and they actually believe this is true, is that what about these things called the pseudepigrapha? What about books like um, the, the um, Gospel of Barnabas or the Gospel of Thomas? He likes to promote... Uh, 
discussions around, he likes to say that the canon of the New Testament came, Testament came about at the Council of Nicaea. Well, that's interesting. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canonization of the New Testament. It had to do with the early church heresy. It had to do with a gentleman named uh, Arius who didn't believe that Christ was divine. And so at the Council of Nicaea, it was to approach Arius and, and correct his, the error in his ways. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canonization of Scripture. Now, those who do a little bit more uh, research say that, well, the canonization happened at the Council of Hippo, Carthage, and Laodicea. Now, there is a difference between attesting to something and subjectively voting on something, okay? I could bring Amy up here and say, this is my wife, Amy. And you could say, yes, it is. You're attesting to the fact that she's my wife. That's not, it's not when you say, yes, she is, that she becomes my wife, okay? It's just you're agreeing with me, okay? So at Hippo, Carthage, Laodicea, they brought up the discussion of these 27 documents. They are canon, Right? Yes, they are. It's the way they've always been. Any, any others? Nope. No other books. There were discussions. They, there were some disagreements. But no book that is in our New Testament canon was ever universally voted on. No book that was in our New Testament canon was ever universally rejected. So how do we know what are the standards? And I'm going to cover those four real quickly and then I'm going to close. There's four standards for canon. First is apostolicity. It had to be written by someone who is directly an apostle or someone who is indirectly uh, in uh, relation with the apostle. In other words, you have Matthew, John, Peter, who were direct disciples, whereas you had gentlemen like Mark and Luke, who were direct disciples of apostles. They had close relation, a relationship with them. They were traveling companions. They were direct disciples. Okay, orthodoxy. It had to agree with the rule of faith. You could not have a book that was in conflict or contradicted other writings. Most importantly, antiquity. It had to be written during the era of the apostles. This this uh, disqualifies every single book that Dan Brown brings up and many on the internet that want to talk about the lost books of the gospels every single one of those books were written hundreds of years after the new testament the very claim that they make about what's in the new testament finally ecclesiastical usage it had to have been in use by the church at that time and we know this because in the archaeological digs we have found all of the new testament manuscripts we have found none in those archaeological digs of these other pseudepigrapha. They came around hundreds of years later. So in closing, folks, the reason why, and I know some of these skeptic uh, uh, objections may seem kind of trivial. They may seem like, man, I would never believe that. But folks, there are those who do. There are those who, who do buy into that. And, and while it's the Holy Spirit that saves you just might be the tool that God uses to reach someone at some point in time, and this may be the very thing that they're struggling with.
Because even though these are ridiculous lies, that's what Satan does. That's what the enemy does. If you called Satan a liar to his face, he'd be like, that's what I do. That's who I am. And if he can deceive someone, no matter how ridiculous it is, he's going to do it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening. I would love to just close in prayer real quick over you and then hand this back to Dr. Tor. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that we can come together. We can come together freely. We can learn about you. We can praise you. We can worship you. We can read your word that you have provided us. Father, I pray for each person in here that they would not just know more about you, but that they would know you, know you personally. And Father, I pray that you would put opportunities in their path each and every day, Lord, for them to share the hope that is within them. And that you would give them the eyes to love others as you love them. Father, we love you. We glorify you. We give you all the praise and glory. And we pray all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.